Brought to you by GSK. Any season, any month, any day, shingles can strike. Are you protecting your patients? Don't wait to vaccinate. Learn more by visiting shingleseason.com. Hello and welcome to the November 7th, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to let you know about the new material you'll find on annals.org. In the U.S., there is ongoing lively debate about the scope of practice that should be permitted for non-physician clinicians, such as nurse practitioners. The first study I'll mention helps to inform that debate. This study of more than 73,000 primary care physicians and nurse practitioners suggests that both are similarly likely to inappropriately prescribe medications to older patients. Researchers calculated inappropriate prescribing rates for 23,669 nurse practitioners and 50,060 primary care physicians prescribing medications to patients aged 65 years and older across 29 states that have granted nurse practitioners prescriptive authority. Inappropriate prescribing was defined using the American Geriatric Society Beers Criteria. The researchers found that both primary care physicians and nurse practitioners averaged approximately 1.7 inappropriate prescriptions for every 100 prescriptions written. However, nurse practitioners were overrepresented among clinicians with both the highest and the lowest rates of inappropriate prescribing. According to the authors, these findings provide useful lessons for policymakers, lawmakers, and regulators. Use of clinician-level performance measures coupled with efforts to improve prescribing at the organizational and individual levels could help to address deficient performance among all clinicians who prescribe medication. An accompanying editorial emphasizes that while similar for nurse practitioners and physicians, the salient issue is that the rates of inappropriate prescribing are too high among clinicians of all stripes. The authors note that nurse practitioners are providing a greater proportion of care to older adults outside of large metropolitan areas, many of whom would likely have no other source for primary care. They also emphasize that nurse practitioners will continue to serve critical roles in ensuring that older adults in areas with inadequate numbers of healthcare providers receive primary care. The goal should be to reduce variation and improve prescribing quality among all clinicians who care for older adults. Next is an analysis of medical and procedural abortions that found that the overall incidence rate of abortions decreased by 14% during the early phase of the COVID-19 pandemic and did not return to pre-pandemic rates by June 2022. Because of the pandemic, the in-person dispensing requirement that has been standard for mifepristone since the drug was approved was not enforced from July 2020 to January 2021 and after April 2021, creating an opportunity for increased patient access to medical abortions via telemedicine. The extent to which these regulatory changes resulted in changes in how abortion care was delivered is the focus of the next study in Annals. The researchers studied medical and procedural abortion rates among a population of commercially insured women aged 15 to 44 years, from January 2018 to June 2022. The authors found that prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the incident rate of abortions was 151 per million women with equal rates of medical and procedural abortions. After March 2020, there was an immediate 14% decrease in the monthly incidence rate of abortions. This decrease was driven by a 31% decline in procedural abortions without a corresponding increase in the use of medical abortions. 
Fewer than 4% of medical abortions each month were administered via telehealth during each month of the study period. These findings contrast with the use of other procedures across many specialties, which returned to pre-pandemic levels by mid-2020 or 2021, after hospitals and clinics began resuming normal operations. According to the authors, their study suggests that regulatory changes designed to enhance abortion access during the pandemic did not result in a major shift from in-person visits to telehealth encounters, at least among abortions reimbursed by commercial insurance. An accompanying editorial calls for internal medicine physicians, regardless of specialties, to serve as resources for their patients' reproductive health needs. The authors note that there is an opportunity for some internal medicine physicians to prescribe medication abortion with the support of existing resources. They add that for those physicians who are restricted from prescribing because of state laws or employer regulations, awareness of reliable local and online resources where patients can access abortion services is paramount. Finally, they argue that internal medicine physicians and professional societies should consider ways to include abortion in their educational activities and to advocate for policy change regarding insurance coverage, especially given unequal access with self-pay abortion costs and regional barriers. Mild cognitive impairment affects 16 to 20 percent of people older than 65 years of age. The condition can cause memory and thinking problems and impair dual task performance and consequently interfere with complex tasks of daily living. Both cognitive decline and impaired dual task performance are associated with the higher risk for falls, increased healthcare costs, and increased mortality. Current clinical guidelines recommend exercise to preserve cognitive function and mitigate decline in older adults. Next is a randomized controlled trial that evaluates the potential cognitive benefits of Tai Chi. Researchers randomly assigned 318 adults with self-reported memory decline and a clinical dementia rating global score of 0.5 or lower at baseline to engage in cognitively enhanced Tai Chi, standard Tai Chi, or stretching one hour twice weekly for 24 weeks via video conferencing to compare the effectiveness of the interventions for improving global cognition and dual task performance. In addition to the exercise prescribed to the standard Tai Chi group, participants randomized to cognitive enhanced Tai Chi received practice in dynamic Tai Chi forms interwoven concomitantly with a set of cognitively demanding activities involving interactive, reactive, and verbal and nonverbal cueing. These cognitively stimulating and challenging dual task exercises required participants to do things such as verbally repeat the step-by-step movements, exercise recall of Tai Chi forms and sequence, practice associating four names with form numbers, and perform forms with word spelling. The authors found that cognitively enhanced Tai Chi significantly improved global cognition and lowered cognitive costs associated with dual tasks at 24 weeks compared with standard Tai Chi and stretching. Favorable improvements were also seen in cognition and function, executive function, and working memory, and the effects were sustained at 48 weeks. The intervention was safe, with few mild adverse events reported. The authors note that the virtual home-based exercise program also had high fidelity and adherence, suggesting that it could be a feasible, acceptable, exercise-based therapy for older adults concerned about cognitive impairment. The next article reports a pragmatic controlled trial that found that interventions to redesign care for hospitalized medical patients helped to improve the perceived level of teamwork from nurses' perspectives 
but did not seem to affect patient outcomes. Hospitalized patients often require care from multidisciplinary teams, and the teams providing care to hospitalized medical patients can be large. Team membership often changes continually, and physicians often care for patients across multiple teams simultaneously. A growing body of research has evaluated individual interventions to address these challenges by redesigning aspects of the care delivery system. The authors of this article studied medical units at four U.S. hospitals to evaluate the effect of combined interventions to redesign hospital care delivery on teamwork and patient outcomes. Each hospital selected one unit for implementation of the interventions and a second to serve as a control. Interventions included unit-based physician teams, unit nurse-physician co-leadership, enhanced interprofessional rounds, unit-level performance reports, and patient engagement activities. After implementation of the complementary interventions to redesign care, nurses gave higher ratings to the teamwork climate score. While the authors hypothesized that greater teamwork and interprofessional communication would improve patient outcomes, they found that adverse events, length of stay, 30-day readmissions, and reported patient experience did not improve. According to the authors, healthcare leaders should consider these findings in the context of their improvement priorities before implementing similar interventions. A study from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggested that one in five COVID-19 survivors aged 18 to 64 years and one in four survivors aged 65 years or older experienced a condition that was potentially attributable to previous COVID-19 infection. While we know the treatment of acute outpatient COVID with nermotrelivir, ritonavir, brand name Paxlovid, reduces hospitalization and death among infected persons at high risk for severe disease, we do not know if treatment reduces the risk of post-COVID sequela. The next article reports a trial emulation study of veterans with COVID-19 that suggests that Paxlovid does not reduce the risk for many post-COVID-19 conditions, including cardiac, pulmonary, renal, gastrointestinal, neurologic, mental health, musculoskeletal, or endocrine symptoms. No differences were observed between the two groups, except for a lower combined risk for venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism. Guidelines recommend that primary care clinicians recognize obesity and offer treatment. The next article illustrates the importance of clinicians' language when talking with patients about weight. The researchers analyzed the conversations that occurred between patient and clinicians during 246 weight management referrals recorded as part of the Brief Interventions for Weight Loss trial. Analysis focused on clinicians' linguistic and paralinguistic features to identify interactional approaches. The researchers then examined the association between clinicians' approaches and patient weight loss adjusting for potential confounders. The researcher examined the association between clinicians' interactional approaches and patients' participation in weight management programs and weight loss. Clinicians' linguistic and paralinguistic features were classified as conveying good news related to the opportunity to participate in a weight management program, bad news centered on the harms of obesity, or neutral. They found that when raising the topic of excess weight in consultations, presenting weight loss treatments as a positive opportunity is associated with greater uptake of treatment and greater weight loss than a negative or neutral approach. An accompanying editorial discusses how a person's body weight is unfortunately very much intertwined with societal and cultural misperceptions. Consequently, the healthcare setting and a person's personal physician should provide a safe space free of weight bias and stigma. 
Remote patient monitoring is a promising tool for improving chronic disease management, and its use in monitoring hypertension is growing. Yet whether remote patient monitoring actually improves blood pressure outcomes remains unclear. The next article reports a study that aimed to estimate remote patient monitoring's association with hypertension care and spending by comparing changes in outcomes from 2019 to 2021 for patients with hypertension at high remote monitoring practices versus those that match control practices with little use of remote patient monitoring. The researchers found that patients at high remote practice monitoring practices had a 1.5 increase in unique medications received compared to patients at match control practices. Most medication changes were in the first four months of starting remote patient monitoring. Overall, there was a 278 per patient relative increase in spending at high remote patient monitoring practices. These findings suggest that high use of remote patient monitoring was associated with improved medication adherence and more medication changes, but also increased spending. Unfortunately, microaggressions can occur between medical team members. Such situations call for communication to restore a healthy work culture. These conversations are challenging, but navigating them skillfully is essential. While much has been published about difficult provider-patient interactions, significantly less is available to help navigate medical team member to medical team member interactions, despite their critical role in improving multidisciplinary patient care teams and organizational environment. The next article is intended to serve as a guide for medical colleagues who are interested in taking personal responsibility to promote a safe and inclusive culture by engaging in and modeling difficult conversations with colleagues. The authors provide practical advice to assist with intentional preparation and modulating responses for all involved, conversation initiators, observers of the incident, and conversation receivers. Go to annals.org for useful strategies for navigating challenging situations. Fecal immunochemical tests, or FIT tests, for hemoglobin are increasingly employed for colorectal cancer screening, but the time interval after which a negative FIT should be repeated are debated. It is hypothesized that quantifying fecal hemoglobin concentration could help stratify risk. The objective of the NET study was to examine the association of fecal hemoglobin concentration and advanced neoplasia in an ongoing study of screening colonoscopy in Germany. Participants were recruited between November 2008 and December 2020, and a quantitative fit was performed prior to screening colonoscopy. Prevalence of advanced neoplasia increased from 6% among those with hemoglobin concentrations less than 1.7 micrograms per gram to 22% in the highest group of FIT negatives and up to 51% among patients with FIT positive tests. These results extend those of previous studies in which among patients with negative FIT tests, fecal hemoglobin concentration predicted advanced neoplasia in subsequent screening rounds. The advent of glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists and terzapatide ushers in a paradigm shift in the management of type 2 diabetes and obesity. Their use is likely to increase. However, we lack reliable information relating to their effects to slow gastric emptying and provoke gastrointestinal symptoms such as nausea and diarrhea. In part, this lack of information is due to using suboptimal methodology to evaluate gastric emptying. A new commentary discusses this issue and what is needed to obtain high-quality information on the effects of these drugs on gastric emptying and subsequent impact on glycemic control and weight loss. 
Also new is a position paper from the American College of Physicians Ethics, Professionalism, and Human Rights Committee addressing health as a human right and examining the intersection of human rights, ethical obligations, and health reform. The American College of Physicians believes that health as a human right aligns with, but does not fully encompass, the ethical obligations of physicians, the medical profession, and a just society, and stresses the urgency and importance of health as part of a physician's commitment to the best in patient interests, thus empowering them to make choices in pursuing their health. The concept of health as a human right is complex. Go to annals.org to read the full position paper and an accompanying editorial. The last new article I'll mention is a commentary in which American College of Physicians Chief Executive Officer Dr. Daryl Moyer and Chief Advocacy Officer Shari Erickson share strong words for pharmaceutical and other healthcare companies that are challenging the implementation of the Medicare prescription drug price negotiation program. So far, these businesses have spent approximately $400 million challenging the program in U.S. courts. The American College of Physicians, along with other medical societies, is pushing back. The authors expressed strong support for the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill was signed into law last year, providing the U.S. Secretary of Health and Human Services with the authority to negotiate the prices for a set number of drugs, with implementation of those decreased prices in 2026. While the first 10 drugs in the Medicare Part D program were recently named, This is only a starting point and more needs to be done because many patients still face what the authors refer to as a Sophie's choice, having to decide between purchasing their prescription medications or other life-sustaining necessities. For those patients, the American College of Physicians vows to fight. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will go to annals.org to read some of the new articles I've mentioned. You can earn CME and MOC credit if you do. And please return in two weeks for the next Analyst Podcast. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Any season, any month, any day, shingles can strike. Are you protecting your patients? Don't wait to vaccinate. Learn more by visiting shinglesseason.com.